One of the most exciting Old Testament stories I can remember even even as a kid, loving the story of Elijah and all the things that Elijah accomplished. So we're going to spend a little time looking at what some might consider the high point of his career. Just to, in the interest of time, cut some of the story short, I will say that Elijah went to King Ahab and said, it's not going to rain except by my word. Wow. So, he's the only weatherman that ever was accurate. (laughs) And for three years, it didn't rain. And so Ahab is looking for water and he's looking for Elijah. And in 1 Kings 18, the first verse says, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Wow. Do you think uh, Elijah thinks Ahab really wants to see him? But the Lord says, Go see him. Because I'm going to send rain on the earth. So Elijah goes to show himself to Ahab. And in Samaria, the famine was severe. You know how hard it is when there's drought just one year and the crop fails. Now it's been three years. And some of the stories of what happened during that time with Elijah are are amazing. Uh, the, uh, The little bit of flour and the little bit of oil that fed Elijah and a woman and her son for those, those many, many months. But Ahab and Obadiah, who was basically Ahab's chief of staff, and by the way, who feared the Lord greatly, so it must have been a tough work environment for him, go out to um, find all the springs of water and, and find grass and perhaps keep the horses and mules alive in verse 5 and not lose some of the animals. So these two men, the king and his chief of staff, divide the land between them to pass through it. So Ahab goes in one direction, Obadiah goes in another direction, and Obadiah's on the way, and there's Elijah. And Obadiah recognized him. I love this. He fell on his face and says, is it you, my lord Elijah? He said, it's I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so... When he can't find you, he'll kill me. Elijah tells Obadiah not to worry. And Ahab does come to meet Elijah. And Ahab's first response to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? That's kind of like if I say something negative to my wife. It turns out, no, I'm the one who caused the problem. You know, I may say it's her fault, but... We'll talk about this when we get home. So, 
Elijah's answer is, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, and here's where it starts to get really intriguing. Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. All right, there's Elijah by himself and all the people of Israel to be gathered together, plus 850 false prophets, prophets of false gods. Sounds a little one-sided. And so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Hmm. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Well, we can go along with that. Let's find out who the real God is. Now the story goes on that the prophets of Baal prepared their sacrifice and put the bull on the altar and prayed to their God for hours and no one answered. Around noon Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and let's see how you would worship God. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. Wow. Never been asked to do that here. Just a little blood, come on. Thankfully, we have a Savior who shed blood, and we don't need to. And in verse 29, we read it as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. And I, we all know why because there is no God called Baal. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And as the custom was, he took twelve stones, according to the number, of the number of the tribes of sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. Now, I had to look that up because I didn't really know what that meant. But a seah, depending on who you talk to, is about eight or nine um, quarts of water. So it's not really that much water that's going into this trench. But he dug this trench around the altar and he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. 
Now here's the part that's really intriguing. Three years of famine, remember? They've just come from going to try, try to find springs of water. And what does Elijah say? Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And, and I can just see all those people just, give me a little of that water. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, I can start a fire in a rainstorm. It's a lot harder than doing it when it's dry. But I've been taught how to do it. I can make it happen. But Elijah has drenched everything. And if I'm starting a fire in a rainstorm, I have to find dry wood somewhere. Or I just have smoke that doesn't light. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell... And consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now here's something else that's intriguing. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Here's a prophet who was not afraid to get his hands dirty doing the work of God. Now, I remember sitting at a campfire at an Order of the Arrow event. I think they built this fire lay about four feet cubed. It was immense, way bigger than any Native American group ever built their fires. But we were sitting there as this fire burned and one of the people sitting there had some soft drink can. I think it was a can of Coke. And the fire is just burning away merrily and he throws this can into the center of the fire and it didn't melt, it vaporized, like The Young man was sitting there who is way smarter than me and he said, the temperature has to, I can't remember what it was. Let's just say it has to be 1,500 degrees. Because he knew about the characteristics of aluminum and so on. In order for it not to melt and become a lump, but just to instantly vanish like it did, it had to be really, really hot. So I was not about to put my hand in there. How hot does it have to be to burn the stones? One writer said to his audience, this was the equivalent of a nuclear explosion. Not only did the sacrifice completely burn up, but the altar burned as well. The fire came out of heaven and whoom, that's the way commentators write, whoom, everything was gone. Even the water that had been 
poured out over this sacrifice. There's nothing there but a black spot on the earth, a charred hole in the ground. God answered Elijah's prayer to reveal who the true God was. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, what else does the Bible say about fire? And it says way more than we're going to be able to cover tonight. But it's interesting that one of the first things we read about fire and God, we find in the book of Exodus, in the third chapter. There's Moses, who I'm sure, working in the desert, which gets cold at night, and herding sheep, knew how to start a fire to keep himself warm. And as he's moving along, he sees a fire in a bush. Okay, that probably isn't that uncommon. I mean, it is the desert, so who lit the fire? But this fire is not consuming the bush. I have seen a lot of fires, and I have watched them burn out. And when they finally go out, usually with help, because we don't leave fires burning in scouts, there's nothing but ash, maybe some charred remnants of the wood. This fire is burning a live bush, and it's not consumed. So... What does Moses say about this as he's writing later on in Deuteronomy chapter 4? Now this is just before Moses is taken home to be with God. He says to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God jealous? Now God is not jealous of us. I mean, what do we have that he didn't give us? But he's jealous for us. And that jealousy makes him a consuming fire. At the other end of the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 12, we see that verse quoted. So this is the way God depicts his feelings toward us. As a consuming fire, he will either purify or destroy with his passion. He's either for something with a great deal of ardor or he is against something with a great deal of fury. He is for those who are with him. He is loyal to the nth degree to them, but he is against sin and disloyalty with just as much heat as he is for those who love him and diligently seek him. His attitude is not cool in any way, shape, or form, but hot. He wants us to respond in like manner. Now, as we go through the Old Testament, I was thinking, you know, there's the story of Elijah and this great event, which I don't even think Hollywood could accurately depict, because God's miracle is far greater than special effects. 
So what happens later on? Well, the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the, in the uttermost parts of the camp. Wow. Why didn't that happen more often? Because all through the book of Numbers, the people are complaining. It's, it's interesting reading the people complain, the people com- this, that, the other thing, they complain. No water, no meat. We're so tired of this manna that came from heaven, by the way. But the people complained, and the people cried unto Moses, verse 2, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched, and he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The writer of Hebrews tells us, for you've not come in to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Remember that? Moses, you go listen to God and tell us what he said. We can't stand hearing his voice. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now remember, the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to teach the people that Christ is better. And as you go through Hebrews, everything that is discussed shows that Christ is better. And so he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Wow. My wife and I have a lot of stuff. Most of us do. And it doesn't take much for God to take all of that away. If a tornado touches down in South Antioch, even if we survive, all of our stuff will be gone. But there are some things that we possess that cannot be shaken. The things that God has given us by his grace, like our earthly possessions, some of those things are eternal. And no matter what happens, the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When I was in my early teens, I went to a Christian camp, and the poor camp pastor was speaking one night at 10 o'clock. I don't know how you expect teenagers who have been busy all day to listen through a sermon at 10 o'clock at night. But he was reading from this passage 
And he started speaking more and more quietly as he's reading this text until he got to verse 29 and then yelled at, our God is a consuming. Wow. I jumped up. I guarantee it. And then he said, hey, they're going to have me preaching at this time of night. I got to do something to keep you awake. I have no idea what he said in the rest of that message. (laughs) But I've never forgotten that verse. Do you think the Hebrew Christians to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing didn't remember the words of Deuteronomy 4.24? He's a jealous God, a consuming fire. A fire is a beautiful sight. I have a wool jacket that I have worn on many a camp out. And usually I wear it to work too, but I'll put it on and go to work and people will say, it smells like smoke. Well, yeah, because I was sitting around a campfire all weekend. Now, we cheat in our house. We have a gas fireplace, but it's still beautiful to watch. The colors constantly changing. It doesn't snap, crackle, and pop like a wood fire does, but it's still... A beautiful thing to watch. And something that can be incredibly dangerous. Luann and I survived our house burning. Our youngest child was a year old at the time. At any rate, he's probably the one who lit the fire because he was just old enough to reach up and turn the knob on the gas stove. And that's where the fire started, in the kitchen. But... I like to remind them of that. Yeah, you burned our house down, son. <laughs> Just to keep them, you know, it's a little little test of humility there. But fire can be incredibly destructive. Ask the people in California or wherever forest fires develop. Gallenberg, yeah. And it can be a wonderful warming experience. There's nothing like sitting by a campfire with your feet propped up and allowing the fire to keep you warm. So when else do we find accounts of the fire of God? So as I was looking at those accounts, I, again, had to narrow it down because there are just so many times. I think I found uh, 72 verses in PC Study Bible that talk about the fire of God. And they're all fascinating. For example, the number of times in the Gospels where we're told if your hand or your eye or your foot offends you, cut it off because it's better to go through life without that hand or foot or eye than to burn in hell. That's a pretty serious statement. But back again into the life of Elijah, in 2 Kings and chapter 1, Ahab's son Ahaziah was a lot like his father, although his father did repent in his latter days, which is pretty interesting. You want to hear what the story was like from Ahab's perspective? Ask him someday, because he did repent before his death. His son, not so much. But Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, 2 Kings 1-2. 
and lay sick. So he sent messengers, tell him, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, and whether I shall recover from this sickness. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there's no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've got up, but you shall surely die. Okay, there's a message I want to take to a king. So the messengers returned. He said, why have you come back? Well, because um, there was a man who came to meet us. And he said, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you were sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So he responds in verse 7, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. I can imagine this, the anger and scorn in his voice. That's Elijah. So... The king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah answers, the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Wow. They were just following the king's orders, right? Well, that didn't work for the Nazis. It didn't work for Ahaziah's servants. So how does the king respond? Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. There's a hundred. Hundred and two, I guess. And again, Isaiah apparently isn't very smart. Because he again sends a captain of a third fifty with his fifty, and the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. And no fire consumed them. So Ahaziah, though he was an ungodly king, had some servants who were godly and who knew the power of God. It's like, okay, I saw what happened to the others. Can you please have mercy on my group? And then God tells Elijah to go ahead and see him. Once again, you know, kind of like Jonah going to Nineveh, why would I want to do that? The Ninevites are famous for the atrocities that they've committed. Well, what's Ahaziah going to do to me? But God said, go see him. And he did. And he reiterated those same words. You have disobeyed God. You will die. There's one more occasion in the Old Testament where fire comes from heaven. And this one's an entirely different scenario. Sometime, if you're interested in reading great prayers of the Bible, make sure you look at Second Chronicles chapter 6, where it describes the dedication of the temple that Solomon built. And just picture this. There is Solomon, the king, in all his wealth and royalty, 
kneeling with his hands raised to the sky and praying an incredible prayer, including those words, heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built. He knew who God was. But it says in verse 1 of chapter 7, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Yeah. (laughs) Timed it perfectly, didn't I? So the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, I would say, pretty much in closing, that the fire of God does either purification or destruction. There are promises throughout the scripture. You go through the flood, etc. But if you go through the fire, I'll be with you. And there have been Christians who have literally gone through the fire because they refuse to deny Christ. But all the way to the opposite end of the Bible, we find this interesting occurrence And I had completely forgotten that this even took place. But in Revelation chapter 13 at verse 11, John says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. It spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now there's a whole lot there I don't really understand. Which apparently means I'm going to have to go back and listen to the archives when the pastor preached through Revelation. But in verse 13 it says, It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Talk about absolutely evil. John describes this beast and says he called fire down out of heaven. Sounds miraculous. But let's close with this. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, We read, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This looks like the saints are in trouble. And just in passing... The verse ends, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. An army like the sands of the sea, and God just, just a little bit of his effort, fire comes down and destroys them all. 
And then we read, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now going back to Elijah, do you remember how he he departed earth? Fascinating story. Elisha is his assistant, and Elijah says, stay here a couple of times. And Elisha says, no, I'm going to go with you. And finally, Elijah says, what can I do for you? He says, give me a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah's response is, if you see me depart, then your wish will be granted. Your prayer will be granted. And Elisha did see a chariot and horses of fire come to give Elijah a ride home without his body dying. Hmm? Was that the first Uber? Yeah. <laughs> if Uber arrives for me and it's a flaming car, I'm calling another ride. <laughs> It'll be Lyft next time. Elijah gets a ride home in a chariot of fire pulled by horses of fire. Wow. Do you want to get in that chariot? Well, knowing what we know now, But I wonder if Elisha could even get close. I don't know the answer to that question, but it's one of those things that, you know, just spin in my mind. And Elijah and Moses are the two who meet with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. There are all kinds of theories about Elijah and what happens with uh, the two prophets of the book of the Revelation. Without getting into that, let's just say that Elijah knew something about fire, specifically the fire of God. And at the very end, the last rebellion of man against God, the rebellion ends with the fire of God destroying that army that's in rebellion against him. And then what happens? the new heavens and the earth are created after everything is destroyed by fire and God redoes it all and does it I believe even better than the first time and Jerusalem the holy city comes down from heaven and sits in the spot where Jerusalem is now, but it's much larger than Jerusalem is now. It's like 1,500 miles cubed. 1,500 miles up, and you're in space. But that's how tall that city is going to be. And the God who we serve, the God who is still the God of fire will be providing all of the light. We won't need the sun and the moon because all the light will come from his throne. And we won't be afraid of fire anymore because the fire of God is there on our behalf, not against us. 
but for us. What a God we serve. Amen.